Hello and welcome to Voicebox, KALW's weekly series dedicated to exploring the art of the human voice and the pleasures of singing. I'm Chloe Veltman. Thank you for joining me this evening. A few months ago, as the San Francisco Giants were heading towards victory in the World Series and I was getting more than my fill of baseball on TV, I wrote a blog post complaining about the way in which the vocal artists charged with singing God Bless America or the Star Spangled Banner at the ballparks insisted upon giving such flowery over-the-top renditions of these statutory patriotic songs. Instead of just vocalising the melodies in a straightforward way, the singers insisted on adorning every line with histrionic melismas that, to my mind, ruined the flow of the tune and impact of the message encapsulated in the lyrics. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what's so bright we had the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight o'er the ramparts we watched were so gallant That was the pop vocalist Christina Aguilera's verbose take on the national anthem at a 2005 sports event. And this is Voicebox on KLW. If you've just joined us, welcome. Turns out that I'm not the only person curious about the way in which this obsessively ornate singing style has become such a staple of vocal production in Western pop music over the past 20 years or so. I got a bunch of responses to my blog post, including one from Brian Rosen, a local composer, performer and writer, who continued the discussion with his own blog post about the uses and abuses of the melisma in singing. Brian and I got so excited about the subject that we decided to bring our conversation to the airwaves for you this evening. Brian agreed to come into the studio to record the programme, and here he is. Hi, Brian. Thanks for swinging by. Hey, Chloe. Thanks for having me. Over the next hour or so, we'll take a look at the style and development of the typically Rococo approach to singing popularised by such artists as Christina Aguilera, Mariah Carey, Beyonce and others. We'll be heading back to the Baroque and beyond to examine the roots of the style and also explore the relationships between different kinds of vocal ornamentation and how people who talk and write about such things often get mixed up with their terminology. To help Brian and I on our journey, we're lucky to have in the studio with us a wonderful soprano, Julia Hathaway. Thanks so much for joining us, Julia. Thanks for having me. Julia's kindly offered to demonstrate some different ornamental stylings for us during the course of the show and share ideas on the subject of vocal embellishment from the singer's perspective. So let's get started. Brian, how would you describe the kind of florid embellishments that we heard in the sample I played just now of Christina Aguilera singing the Star Spangled Banner? Uh, well, I'm going to refrain from any value judgments uh, at this stage of the game. Very um, sensible. Uh, objectively, we're, we're looking at uh, sort of the confluence of, of three uh, major ideas here. One is uh, melisma, uh, as you mentioned before. Um, and melisma is, is a way of setting text. Uh, you're basically taking your words and you're setting them to the notes. Uh, and if you have one note for each syllable, you're basically setting it syllabically. And if you have multiple notes per syllable, then you're setting it melismatically. Um, so if you have somebody sustaining a single syllable but changing notes, that's melisma. 
Okay. Um, and it's a, it's a very, very old technique. It dates pretty much to the beginning of, of singing itself. Okay. So why do singers use melisma? What function does it serve in a vocal line? It's sort of often the, the composer will decide how to set these things. Uh, and sometimes, um, if this goes back to sort of the, the church days, what they would do is they would, they would take these phrases and decide whether it was more important that the words be understood. And if it's more important that the words are understood, they might set it syllabically. But if they have these cadence points, points where it's supposed to be drawn out or, or for effect, then they would perhaps do something more melismatically. So what kinds of music use lots of melismatic lines and phrasing is it something that crops up in across the board in all kinds of cultures and musics or do you hear it more in certain kinds of music more than others well there's certainly um it certainly shows up a lot in the church uh and it certainly shows up a lot and actually pretty much all cultures have this to to some extent you'll hear it a lot in in indian raga uh you'll hear it in uh in in arabic uh as they do their call to prayers um it's it just seems to be a natural thing uh that's just sort of germane to singing so let's listen now to an excerpt from an islamic call to prayer which clearly illustrates a melismatic approach to the vocal line You're listening to Voice Box on KALW. I'm in the studio with composer, writer and performer Brian Rosen and soprano Julia Hathaway. We're chatting about the development and distinctions between different kinds of vocal embellishments. We just heard an excerpt from a highly melismatic Islamic call to prayer. So until we started talking, Brian, I always understood melisma to be a form of ornamentation. But you think of it as something slightly distinct from vocal ornamentation. How would you define vocal ornamentation then? And how is it distinct from melisma? Yeah, I would say that the the ornamentation aspect, those ornaments are the, the very fast notes, uh, the fast changing of pitches that occur in a, in a melodic line. Uh, and ornamentation is actually distinct from vocal singing. Uh, ornamentation can exist in any sort of melodic line, not just vocal melodic lines. Oh, I see. Um, now, it, so for example, uh, many times when you hear keyboard works from the Baroque period, it'll be all sorts of trills and mordants and things like that. Um, now, it turns out that most ornaments, when you're singing, end up being melismatic uh, because with such fast notes, it's actually really hard to get words on them. Um, and there are some... some uh, exceptions to that rule but for the most part most of the time ornaments are melismatic vocally uh, okay um so what are the rules that govern ornamentation the rules have been sort of codified uh, over time and i'd say each type of music uh sort of has developed its own rules over time um you know the baroque world certainly had a vocabulary of 
ornaments that they would pull from. And similarly, you'll find the same thing in things, liturgical works, like reading from the Torah has its own set of very distinct rules. This is the ornament you use at this part for this word. This is the ornament you were, use for this word. Uh, and getting into the actual you know, specific rules for each one is we'd be here for a month. Know, <laughs> many more hours than we have time for. Um, but but there are each each sort of style of music has its own idioms. Uh-huh. So do melismas have rules too, or is it more freeform? I think that tends to be a lot more freeform. Uh, that very much comes to how the composer feels like the text best fits the melody. Okay. So I'd like to turn now to Julia. Um, I thought, well, Brian and I concocted this, well, in fact, it was Brian on his own, really, um, concocted this wonderful way of illustrating um, very simply uh, how ornaments work in the main vocal ornaments. Um, Brian, can you maybe talk a little bit about, about what Julia's going to do for us now? Sure. Uh, well, we took a very common Christmas carol, Angels We Have Heard on High, that pretty much everybody can sing. And it turns out that uh, you have the the main sort of underlying melodic line, and then you have these ornaments which sort of like go on top of it. And everybody knows the version with the ornaments, but it's interesting to hear what happens if you actually take those ornaments away. So let's hear Julia now singing Angels We Have Heard on High, at least the, the chorus part of it that everyone knows super well as we all know it and then we'll hear her sing it without the uh, so-called ornamental type of a part okay so we would all usually sing a Gloria in excelsis Deo Let's hear it now with uh, without the embellishments in it. Okay, so then it would just be... Gloria in excelsis Deo. Okay, thanks very much for that. So what would you call those kinds of ornaments? Okay, so that would be a melismatic ornament. Okay, and and why do we call that a melismatic ornament? Well, it's it's certainly an ornament because it's this sort of quick group of notes that's uh, basically surrounding the two central, more important notes and then continues down the scale. Uh, and they're sung melismatically because you're not putting different syllables on each one. Thanks for explaining that. So long before Whitney Houston started off the trend for gilding the national anthem Lily at sports events, vocalists were exercising their vocal prowess to create powerful effects. Highly embellished form of vocal music reached a peak, in a sense, in the Baroque era. Brian, can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. It's it's impossible to to talk about the Baroque era without talking about the, the role that the church played in developing music. Um, and pretty much all music at this time was being developed in the church, with uh, the exception of, of some popular musics that we know very, very little about. Uh, but the church was developing this highly ornamental extended, exalted style of polyphony uh, when Bach was around uh, doing his thing. Uh, and it's actually very interesting to uh, to see, to compare the difference between one of Bach's chorales, uh, which is one of the pieces that he uh, would arrange for just your average regular churchgoer to sing, um, and compare that with, uh, say, one of his masses, uh, which is much more designed for the best singers in the area. Um, if you listen to his chorales, they are primarily not melismatic. They're they're mostly syllabic, um, and uh, you know, with these you know wonderful little arrangements that he did, he managed to pretty much define uh, Western harmony. 
Okay, well, let's listen now to these two extremes in approach to compositional style in Bach's day. First up, we'll hear Jesu Minor Freude, a very plain and unembellished chorale, of course, written by Johann Sebastian Bach in 1723. And then we'll hear the highly ornate Ozana from the composer's B Minor Mass of 1724. Listening to Voicebox on KALW 91.7 FM, I'm Chloe Veltman. On tonight's show, we're tracing a line from the vocal embellishments of Baroque composers to the melismatic meanderings of modern-day pop divas like Mariah Carey, Christina Aguilera and Beyoncé. In the studio with me this evening are the composer and blogger and performer Brian Rosen and the soprano Julia Hathaway. We just heard excerpts from Jesu Meine Freude, an austerely unadorned chorale by J.S. Bach, written in 1723, and the Osanna from the composer's 1724 B minor mass. Now, ornamentation isn't always about glorifying God. Sometimes it's about glorifying the performer, which brings me to the subject of the da capo aria. Brian, the da capo aria became the ultimate expression of the vocal artist's skill, didn't it? Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, the da capo arias were really sort of the the venue for the rock stars of the day. These coloratura singers who would uh, entertain these mad throngs of people um, with their vocal pyrotechnics. Uh, the da capo, uh, the name comes from the head. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not referring to the, the size of the performer's head. They're talking about uh, the head meaning the top of the piece. Uh, the way this song would work is you would sing the A section, the first section. Then there'd be a contrasting B section, usually in a minor key or changing the, the mood somewhat. And then uh, then at the bottom of the aria would be the little words de capo, meaning take it from the top once more. Repeat the A section, um, and this is where we have that uh, that third aspect of this this style of music, the the improvisational aspect of things. Uh, it was expected that the singer of those days would go back to the A section and introduce their own sort of flavor to the thing. They would introduce their own ornaments, their own runs, uh, their own arpeggios, uh, and really sort of make it a tour de force. Let's listen to a da capo aria from the Baroque period now. Here's Tornami a Vagheggiar from the Handel Opera Alcina, as performed by the French soprano Nathalie Dessay. Oh, 
just heard Natalie Dessay performing the heroic aria Tornami a Vagegjar from Handel's opera Alcina. Julia, let's turn to you now. What kinds of vocal ornaments did we hear in that aria? Um, in terms of vocal ornaments, like what you mostly heard was a lot of runs and you'd hear trills a bit. Um, the staccatos are not written into this piece, so she's adding that to it. Um, I think that this this version is, is pretty unique to her and many people copy it now. So how would you approach this aria um, as a singer from a technical perspective? What kinds of ornaments would, would you include or what kind of flavour would you give it? So I mean I think that ornamentation ultimately has to be about it has to add to what the song means, right? So, so it has to have something to do with the text and the and the feeling of the piece that you're doing. And so, this piece, you know, she, this character Morgana is talking to this this man she's in love with. She's telling him that he must come back to her. He's about to leave, and and she wants him to come back and court her. She thinks that he likes her, and he doesn't. It's actually a woman dressed as a man. These plots are so complicated. <laughs> um, but that's... Uh, so, so what happens is it has to become more... Em- emphatic I guess in in the repetition of it you know she can tell him to come back to her in the first time and then when she comes back to that a section she adds these runs on on the word um, you know to court or um, on the word love or you know these things to, that then um, accent those notes or those words with by adding notes and by flourishes okay so ha- does handle write all this stuff in or you're, or you're talking about yourself making those kinds of decisions it, that's the the singers mm-hmm. has to make that decision but you yourself when you sing this aria what do you do <laughs> i mean i honestly have stolen many of natalie's own ornaments um and some of them have become quite traditional actually um so those runs that she does on the second um Vagejar, I, I do those. So, what are the biggest challenges of getting the embellishments down in an aria like this? You know, back in the day when these were done, I think they were supposed to be improvised. You know, and so what you want is for these ornaments to feel unexpected. You know, so when you practice them in, you have to practice them in and practice them in as as if they are part of the written piece. But then they have to have a freshness to them every time you sing it, like you know that that there's a reason for your doing this run, that it's not just a run for f- just because you want to, just for the heck of it, but rather because you're trying to say something. So um, you have to combine this sense of spontaneity with learning. Well, let's talk a little bit about the florid cadenza that ends off so many of these arias. Sure. So actually, I'll ask Brian now, could you define cadenza for us? What is it and what purpose does it serve in a piece? Well, cadenza is it's sort of this this moment where the orchestra comes to this big screeching halt um, and sort of just clears the playing field for the singer to sort of just go kind of show off. Um, you know, the harmonic motion stops. It often stops on a dominant or, or some preparatory dominant chord. And uh, the singer is free to take as much time as they want to do their little arpeggio, arpeggios and runs um, and basically take it on home. Thanks. I mean, I think it's quite interesting as well when we talk about the florid lines that were sung uh, in these songs when we think about the kind of voices that sang them. Um, Julia, you're a coloratura soprano by definition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that word, But that word doesn't just denote the kind of singer that sings these, this music, right? The, the term coloratura also means a florid ornamental line, right? Yeah, yeah. 
That's where the singer gets in it. The one who can actually sing those florid lines. Okay. So now this form of flowery singing that was so popular in Handel's time didn't actually last forever. Um, I'd like to move on a little bit now and and ask Brian, when and why did this loquacious ornamentation fall out of favour? Well, towards the end of the the 1700s, a couple of things happened. we started having the uh, this notion of the composer as as more than just a workman. Uh, the composer wasn't just writing music for the church or 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 for the courts. Um, that the composer was actually sort of expressing something. Uh, the idea of compositional intent, um, and uh, and that sort of started coming out and, and and rubbed up against this notion of the performer as the superstar. Um, and also, people started. Uh, wanting a little bit more perhaps from 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 these these pieces it's interesting to 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 hear julia talk about um working out uh motives uh for or or explanations for why these um these embellishments are happening um because that's a very modern concept uh that's that probably wouldn't be happening at all during the baroque era they would be just sort of doing whatever they would want regardless of whether or not the theater called for it and there was i think always uh there were always critics of that idea and so finally it it just sort of fell out of favor i'm chloe veltman and this is voice box on klw 91.7 fm san francisco the Spirit of Memphis Quartet with the spiritual Here I Am, Send Me. The track was recorded around 1950. With me in the studio for a discussion about vocal ornamentation are Brian Rosen, a local composer, performer and writer, and the soprano, Julia Hathaway. Brian, we've just made a pretty enormous leap in time from the Baroque period to the 1950s. Can we talk a bit about the gospel and spiritual music? How did they contribute to the resurgence of more ornamental styles of singing? Yeah, it actually wasn't as much of a jump in time as you might think. Um, uh, when the slaves were brought over from Africa in, uh, you know, in the early 1800s, they brought with them these traditions from Africa, the, the, these shout sings. Um, and it was a very different musical tradition than, than America certainly had or the West or Europe. Um, and, and they kept it up. Right? They kept doing it uh, in, in their own communities. Um, and they would bring these traditions along with them. Uh, and then what would happen is the church, the American church, would try to bring them in uh, and sort of integrate them in t- with Christianity. And so you end up with this fusion of their own vocal traditions with uh, the Western hymnal tradition. And you would sort of see these, these gospel shouts sort of cropping up. So I'd like to move on now to talking about scat singing and its home within the jazz and big band music of the mid-20th century. Can you tell us, Brian, about the role played by scat in furthering people's passion for florid vocal lines? 
this came about uh, sort of through the blues tradition. Um, and uh, oftentimes, it's, it, Louis Armstrong is given credit for, for being sort of the first guy to actually go ahead and, and record some scat singing. I, I've heard conflicting reports about that. Um, but there's this track called uh, Heebie Jeebies that he did um, with uh, Louis Armstrong and the Hot Five in 1925. And he claimed that what happened was in the middle of the verse, uh, he dropped the music and forgot the words and had to sort of make these things up. Um, it's almost certainly not true. He, right. he pretty much knew what he was doing. And there are stories about Ella Fitzgerald doing the same too. So maybe every great jazz singer and blues singer and whatever has a story like that. Yeah, you know? Or their press agent does. <laughs> Cab Calloway is certainly uh, another one who really popularized this, uh, you know, to a, a, perhaps even a wider audience than Louis Armstrong. He he really brought back, combined both the scat singing uh, with this sort of call and response that you'll see in the gospel world with also this sort of like wailing um uh, sort of long melismatic florid ornamental lines um, that sometimes are pretty much indistinguishable from from some of the calls to prayer that we heard before. Uh, he's almost certainly riffing on that idea. He's, he's very aware of it. So let's hear from Louis and Cab now. First up, we'll hear a snippet from Louis Armstrong's Heebie Jeebies, and then we'll listen to part of Heidi Ho Man by Cab Calloway. Yeah, I've got the heebies. I mean the jeebies talking about there's the heebie-jeebies you KLW's Voice Box. On tonight's show, we're tracing the development of a particular strain of vocal ornamentation with composer and writer and performer Brian Rosen and soprano Julia Hathaway. We just heard from two major exponents of scat singing, Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway. The first track, Heebie Jeebies from 1925, was performed by Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five. The second was Cab Calloway's 1947 track, Heidi Ho Man. So from your research, Brian, it sounds like the scat style that Cab Calloway popularised made its way back into opera thanks to George Gershwin. What led to this development and what was the result? Well, George Gershwin was was certainly looking for black influences, for, for sources for his opera Porgy and Bess, and he really sort of wanted to take this this style, this tradition of gospel. And he had, there are all sorts of examples of of music of, of this flavor from, you know, the the um, working songs, um, from the wailing uh, of a lamenting of, uh, of a funeral, all throughout the entire opera. Um, and there's this one particular song, um, It Ain't Necessarily So, which is very clearly taken from this call and response style uh, of, of Cab Calloway. 
also an interesting little sideline since we've been talking about um, sort of the liturgical tradition here. A lot has been uh, researched about the influence of the Hebrew liturgy on Gershwin's songwriting. Uh, and some people have claimed that the melody of It Ain't Necessarily So is, is actually a variation of one of the main calls to prayer uh, in the, when you're reading the Torah, uh, which goes Barhu es Adonai Hamvorach and if you just add a couple of half steps, it ain't necessarily so. Just wow. pretty similar. That's very fascinating. Do you think there's a real currency to that? Or do you think it's a little bit of... I, I actually have my doubts. I mean, the, those those notes are so sort of basic to harmony. It's like saying he, he based it on the minor chord. <laughs> okay. Well, let's listen to a little excerpt from It Ain't Necessarily So from Porgy and Bess by George Gershwin. It ain't necessarily so. Things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Little David was small, but oh my. Little David was small, but oh my. He fought big Goliath, who lay down and dieth. Little David was small, but oh my. Here on Voicebox, we just heard the original Broadway cast of Gershwin's opera Porgy and Bess singing It Ain't Necessarily So. Beyond opera, vocal ornamentation was also creeping more and more into pop music as R&B and blues music became more commercial and soul music developed. We're going to hear in a moment from two great vocal stylists, Jackie Wilson and the Isley Brothers. Brian, can you tell us about where these artists fit into the history of embellished vocal stylings, please? Jackie Wilson is just a a wonderful, wonderful singer. And you can certainly hear, uh, certainly this recording of Lonely Teardrops. I mean, his voice is just going all over the place. He's he's ornamenting this line in beautiful, beautiful ways. He's a very agile singer. And it's interesting, um, the the song we'll hear afterwards, Shout, by the Isley Brothers, actually happened. uh, Shout isn't really a song that they wrote. What happened is they were singing uh, a version of Jackie Wilson's Lonely Teardrops for an audience, and they just started riffing on the line... um, Say You Will, um, which you'll hear in, in both songs. And they just sort of started riffing on it and turned it into this gospel shout chorus. And the crowd went wild and said, hey, we have to we have to get in here and record this. This is going to be a big song. And, and they did. And, and, you know, you listen to that track. I mean, that is pretty much, you know, just like the, the spirit of, of Memphis that we heard. I mean, they are definitely having a lot of, um, you know, emotion in what they're singing, although to a different different end. Um, they... Uh, uh, and and then actually there's a cadenza in there too, right? I mean he, they they all everything stops, right? They go now wait a minute, and then he just takes this big long cadenza. Well, let's listen now. Here's snippets from Jackie Wilson's "Lonely Teardrops" from 1958, and "Shout" by the Isley Brothers, recorded in 1959. My heart is crying.
snippets from Jackie Wilson's Lonely Teardrops from 1958 and Shout by the Isley Brothers recorded in 1959. So it seems that florid vocal lines started to gather quite a bit of traction in the pop world in the last century, don't you think, Brian? Yeah, you see them all over the place. So ornamentation of one kind or another shows up in all sorts of popular music styles from folk and rock to country and funk. Here are a few quick examples of well-known songs that use ornaments from the 1970s and 80s.
this voice box program all about ornamentation we just heard a medley of pop artists from the 1970s and 80s demonstrating the uses of elaborate vocal lines in a wide array of musical genres we heard from Dolly Parton Stevie Wonder Joni Mitchell Guns N' Roses and finally Whitney Houston and for more detailed track listings please see the playlist section of our website at www.voicebox-media.org so to my mind I think we have to credit the last of the singers we just heard Whitney Houston for helping to make the over-the-top melismatic style of vocalising that launched our discussion tonight such a staple of the pop music canon in the past two decades. What are your thoughts, Brian, about the use and abuse of melismas in the music of pop artists that have followed in Whitney's footsteps, like Mariah Carey and Celine Dion and Beyonce and Christina Aguilera? Oh, well, you know, I have to say that um, when I was researching this playlist, I was, I was kind of fully expecting to hate almost all of it. Uh, but the truth is, a lot of it is, is pretty fun to listen to. Right. Um, you know, you listen to Mariah Carey's Vision of Love, and, and that's, it's just a pretty darn good song. And she's singing, you know, amazingly in it. And it's, it's very exciting. It seems to, it feels like it's coming from a, an honest place when they're doing it. And it's actually really fun to listen to. So um, what role would you say that American Idol has played in promoting this style of singing? Well, it certainly has promoted it. Uh, there's, it, it seems like everybody has, has heard this sort of melismatic, sort of histrionic way of singing and just sort of figure like, this is what good singing is. And so they feel obligated to mimic it, whether or not they have the ability to do it and whether or not the music actually calls for it. So it really has become this ubiquitous thing um, in singing these days. And all they have to do is like go to YouTube and, and look at people, you know, looking earnestly into the camera, trying to sing these incredibly ornate melismatic lines and just have to say, nah, you know, just leave that to Whitney, please. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear on Voicebox, we're talking about some of the uses and abuses of ornamentation in vocal music. With me in the studio is Brian Rosen, a Bay Area-based composer, performer and writer, and the singer Julia Hathaway. We just heard Mariah Carey with Oh Holy Night and David Archuleta with his version of the John Lennon song Imagine. Brian, it's hard to imagine more over-perfumed versions of these two songs, isn't it? Yeah, they certainly uh, take things to the extreme. Um Archuleta li- a little bit less so. I mean, he's not doing quite as elaborate ornamentation, but he's he's doing a lot to the melody that perhaps doesn't necessarily really need to be done. I mean, it's such a 
it's such a, a sort of simple, um, straightforward song that giving it this this overwrought treatment just doesn't feel doesn't feel honest. It doesn't feel genuine. And there's something about um, a lot of these songs when they're most effective. It's like you feel like the singer has reached the point where where words no longer effectively communicate how they're feeling. And so they have to just sort of move into this sort of wailing, crying um, uh, emotion that they have. And I just don't feel like this song carries that well. It's uh, it's a song about, you know, us all coming together. It shouldn't be about the performer. It shouldn't be about, um, it shouldn't be about showing off. It should be about, you know, this simple, beautiful idea. As we've been discussing, it, it seems that... Uh that in fact this whole melismatic feel to the songs has been completely overused and I think lately there has been a bit of a backlash against the use of too many frills in a vocal line and I don't just mean in our blog posts Brian, if you listen to the latest songs of the most popular artists today like Pink and Katy Perry and Lady Gaga, the vocal lines are often extremely unadorned why do you think this might be the case Brian, is it that the singers don't have the chops to do the show offy stuff anymore or are they showing off in a different way? It, it could be partially that the singers, these particular singers don't really have those uh, sort of pyrotechnic abilities that uh, Mariah and Whitney certainly have in spades and, and Beyonce too, but that, well that's interesting because Beyonce, um, if you look earlier in her career, she certainly uh, is capable of doing these amazingly ornate melismatic lines, but her recent stuff doesn't. Right. Um, you know, the single ladies, she, she's doing much more of the sort of shorter, shorter bursts. Um, so there is something that, that's indicating that this is sort of falling out of fashion. Okay, well, here's an example from Katy Perry of the kind of plain singing style that seems increasingly the rage these days. The song is California Girls, and it features a cameo appearance from Snoop Dogg. Greetings, loved ones. Let's take a journey. I know a place where the grass is really greener. Warm, wet and wild. There must be something heard the unadorned singing style of pop artist Katy Perry with California Girls. Perry's style demonstrates a new move away from the florid singing approach that has held so much sway in the world of pop for the last two decades. It's sadly almost time to say goodnight. I have one more question for you, Brian and Julia, though, before we go. Do you think that despite the fact that today's most well-known pop artists seem to be moving away from a highly embellished melismatic singing style, there's still room for ornamentation in singing? I, I certainly think so. I mean, these things tend to be pretty cyclic. Uh, all it takes is like, you know, one breakthrough star to come out with a long melismatic style that people haven't heard in like six or seven years. And all of a sudden that's what's going to be fresh and new. And, and it, you know, there'll be a resurgence of it. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Julia? Yeah, I would love to. I, I It just made me think of this uh, story about a, a girl who... I've met in New York who this past year got the chance to walk onto the Met stage. Um, she was the understudy for Olympia um, with Tales of Hoffman. And the way that she made her mark, this was Rachel Gilmore, was by singing the highest note that had ever been sung on the Met stage. So she ornamented Olympia's song, which is traditionally done, you ornament it. Um, and sh- the end of the little cadenza sort of thing where she actually goes way up to a high A. And that is, yeah. So... 
in classical music and in opera, it's always going to come down to, in some ways, vocal gymnastics and virtuosity, because that's what makes opera so different from any other vocal style. So I think to say that that in classical music we'll ever get rid of that kind of singing would just be sort of silly. Um, anyway. That's well, what I thought. Thanks. I'd like to say a, a florid, melisma-like thank you to the wonderful Brian Rosen and Julia Hathaway for sharing their ideas, knowledge and vocal skills with us tonight. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. Voicebox is produced at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Voicebox is made possible by support from our listeners. To find out how you can become more involved with Voicebox, including how to make a tax-deductible donation, much needed, to support the project, please visit our website at www.voicebox-media.org. Don't forget that you can now listen to the latest edition of Voicebox and any of the station's other great locally produced music programmes on demand via KLW's online music player. This fabulous tool is available 24-7 at www.klw.org. And you can also keep up with us on Facebook and via Twitter. And we love to hear from you, so please write to us with any questions or comments at info at voicebox-media.org. On next week's show, I'll be joined by two musicians from the acclaimed Tuvan throat singing ensemble Hun Hur Tu for a discussion about the history of and techniques involved in practicing this mesmerizing artistic tradition. So do join us next week on Friday from 10 to 11 p.m. here on KLW. I'll play us out with a 2009 song by Lady Gaga, Telephone also illustrating the more toned-down vocal style of today. Interestingly, the track features Beyoncé, an artist who until recently was very much a proponent of intricate melismatic vocal lines. Just goes to show what a singer has to do to keep up with the times. Have a songful week. Hello, hello, baby, you called, I can't hear a thing. I have got no service in the club, you say, say. What, what, what did you say, oh, you're breaking up on me. Sorry, I cannot hear you, I'm kind of busy. Kind of